0: probably the one thing you know about being a CEO that I, I again I wish I'd listened the first the first uh, tech startup I worked in got a fantastic uh, 115 million uh, dollar um, exit and I've been with that from sort of person 23 to person about 300 I think when we when we sold it and I remember asking the founder I said like what have you learned I thought, well, I'm going to listen now because and he said it's all about people is absolutely all about people it's not about technology
1: Hi welcome to the SAS Revolution show brought to you by Sasstock. I'm your host Alex Suma and today I bring you the first of our extended podcast episodes where I ask the nitty-gritty details I usually don't have time for. These hour-long episodes offer a well-rounded insight into the workings of some of the most successful SaaS founders and their companies. My guest is John Thompson, a co-founder and CEO who's taking two businesses from zero ARR through Seed and A-Rounds. His first company, Commerce Decisions, was an early SaaS exit back in 2008. Today, he's chairman of Wax and Prospectsoft, 2 later stage private equity-backed SaaS companies. He also works closely with forward partners a London-based seed stage VC funding, uh, advising their B2B SaaS portfolio companies on sales and growth. As he told me in the interview, he has eight to nine SaaS CEOs in his life every week. In our chat, we cover everything from fundamentals of building a strong SaaS company and the most important elements for success, through to what has made him a successful CEO, all the way to what was the wake-up call for him to start taking care of his mental and physical health and how he goes about it. Some of John's beliefs may be seen as controversial, but he steadfastly believes in them because they all stem from his own experience in which with every one good year came with three or four bad ones. John has been at every SASDOC flagship conference to date and will be join us, uh, joining us for a fourth time this October in Dublin. You can sign up for the insider sale at SASDOC.com and be the first one to find out when we release our two-for-one tickets in April. Sasstock is always better with a co-founder or a colleague so you can cover more ground and learn at multiple tracks and boot camps. Welcome to the SAS Revolution show, uh, John Thompson. Welcome, John. Welcome, everybody, and uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Alex. Looking forward to it. No, that's uh, great to have you on the, uh, on the show. Um, obviously I think we've, uh, I've seen you at three SAS stocks, uh, in a row. Uh, I think two of, two of them we've invited you to, uh, one, you, you, came off your, your own accord, I think the very first one. So that's how I connected, uh, uh, to you. Um, but yes, so I...
0: I'm a, I'm a pre-committed member of SAS doc uh, community and really enjoyed all three of them actually. And, uh learned some stuff I came to my first one having already been in SaaS for about 15 years and, and I still learned a load of stuff so uh, it's a great community and uh, hopefully I can give something back today.
1: No excellent well no definitely you're, you're, you're a part of that you've been giving back the last couple of years at, uh, at SAS.com via speaking and being involved in uh, you know in the CEO workshops and, and kind of that's reason what wanted to invite you on uh today given that um you, you know I mean, you, you'll get into it yourself but you, you know the history sass that that you've had and um you, you know your, your current sort of uh, uh I, I guess uh, you know career what you're doing with SaaS companies there's just a lot of interesting stuff that i, I think you, you know we could get into that you could probably write a book about uh, we we have probably less than a, a, an hour or so um but uh, I, I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation for the audience at home so uh so yeah i'm glad you're you're with us today but john like uh, i i just introduced you as john thompson right you know if somebody Google john thompson probably get 1.5 million hits (laughs) quite a common name certainly in in the uk I i didn't give you know any other background who who is john thompson
0: yeah, no, I'm definitely on page four or five of uh, of Google. So uh, yeah, do do let me introduce this John Thompson rather than the piano, the piano teacher who tends to come up uh, first in uh, in in Google. So uh, yeah, well, what I did today actually is I chair two uh, really uh, awesome SaaS companies, Wax Digital and Prospect Soft. Um, they're profitable, later stage, private equity backed SaaS businesses, and I spend probably about half my time between the two of them. Um, and then I also work with a bunch of early uh, stage uh, SaaS businesses, particularly in the the uh, portfolio of Forward Partners, who are one of the best seed stage uh, VC investors in uh, in London, and have quite a, a nice group of B two B, which is my special specialization B two B SaaS companies that I work with. And then I'm uh, kind of a coach uh, to uh, to a handful of other SaaS uh, CEOs. So. Uh, between all of that, I have probably uh, eight or nine SaaS CEOs in my life on a weekly, uh, on a weekly basis uh, at the moment. I mean, before that, I guess my, my credentials to, to provide that help and support are that I've uh, been a SaaS uh, founder and been through the kind of, um, you know, zero ARR through C, through Series A uh, twice uh, and uh, with one of the companies on to quite a successful Exit back in 2008 with a company called Commerce Decisions, which really was quite early in the world of SaaS in that the whole cycle was done by 2000 and uh, 2008. Um, it was VC-backed. We got about just under four times return for, uh, for our investors. And uh, the claim to fame of that particular software is that it supported some $350 billion worth of procurement projects around the world by now, so quite a well-used piece of uh, SaaS. Uh, and then one of my, I guess, my proudest achievement, I, I went into the office the other day. It's 10 years since I sold the business. And uh, nobody knew who I was. Which for <laughs> me, was like, it was like, there's a real sense of achievement that I've created something that that has gone on to absolutely thrive uh, without me. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's well, my story.
1: It's a good story. Actually, uh, uh, on that, I mean, I don't know why I just I thought of it, the uh, equivalent. I wonder how many people um, uh, like would know who Ray Kroc is at Mac, you know, that work for McDonald's, uh, you know, uh, I I would imagine like not a lot. Um, no, so, you know, for those that are working like you know behind the counter, probably only the uh, the management. But uh, I don't know if that's like an equivalent thing. But uh, you know, putting you up there with Ray Kroc, the Ray Kroc of SAS.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably uh, that's probably quite a big compliment. But yeah, yeah hopefully, yeah, hopefully, uh, my business was less bad for waistlines uh, worldwide. Indeed. So, yeah. Who, who knows? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an occasional customer of McDonald's, so I'm not going to knock it. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. And um, so, pretty, pretty great SaaS chops there. Um, you, you know, often, uh, you know, we talk about, um, you know, what do we look for? Like people that speak at SaaS often you know, get involved, and you know, SaaS chops is this. Uh, I don't know, intangible kind of like quality um, whereby uh, yeah you know if you 're doing something within in the community or have that kind of experiences um, you, you know something that we we look to and uh, obviously one of the reasons that you, you know we 're we're, you, you know, pleased to have you within. Uh, the, the community and contributing and so but th- these uh or your journey in in, in SAS, um you, you know it, it's been going for a, a, a while right since but was it uh, since before it was even called SAS?
0: it was yeah i mean it was i guess it was uh, it wasn't called SAS in those days and I, I remember actually the day that i sort of see my career in SAS as starting and i i walked into the office one day in the, the on-premise software startup i was in at the time, so this is about 20 years ago now, so it's a while. And we had this particularly beefy laptop, which was very, very overspecified and had every feature you could dream of in a laptop. And then it was covered in post it notes saying, Do not turn me off. And I went to ask him, What the hell is that laptop doing running with don't turn me off on post it notes all over it? And he said, Well, you know, we haven't got the software in yet because it's taking too long with IT. So I've let someone log in over the internet and use the software as a service on the laptop now i mean that's it's probably making everyone listening sort of shudder as a, as a not proper way of doing SAS, but but uh you know that was the moment for me when i just saw the power of that that here we were providing a, a benefit and a service to a business person you know without the need to install the software and go through six months of it and uh you know, very quickly we had the software installed and we were using it kind of properly and not 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 running it on this laptop that someone could have turned off if they didn't didn't. Um, you know, AWS doesn't get turned off by accident, does it? It's a totally different world. But at that moment, I just thought, yeah, this is this is a revolution. This is this is epic. Um, so yeah, I remember it. And whoever that um, crazy developer was who set that up without asking anyone's permission all those years ago, I'm very grateful to them because. It was the moment that my my mind really got turned on to to SaaS.
1: And were you uh, what what sort of role in an organisation were you at that time with that on premise software company? Were you an exec uh you, you know
0: how, yeah how- i was yeah no i was in i was in charge of that service that we were providing quite without my knowledge so uh hence i had to go and find out about the uh, <laughs> the uh, uh what the post-it note actually meant so yeah i mean it's a great example of bottom-up innovation because we became a SaaS company um but the uh you know it was it was at that time quite an unconventional um thing to do
1: and, and, and given uh, this this sort of 20 years or, or so like experience from, uh, you know, first seeing a, a SaaS tool, um, you, you know, loading software on, on, onto your laptop to, you, you know, running to uh, SaaS companies, uh, you, you know, as, as a CEO, uh, and obviously now, you know, like working with all, all, all the SaaS CEOs and, and companies that you do, um, I guess you, you've got great exposure into, you, you know, what's, what works, what, what, what doesn't work, um, uh, and uh, I guess kind of starting uh, off, uh, you, you know, around some of the stuff that uh, that works, you, you know, and, and the fundamentals um, to, to succeeding in SaaS, um, you, you know, that you've learned along the way. Uh, I guess, you, you know, we mentioned at the beginning um, before we were recording that, you know, there are a lot of big questions, uh, you, you know, here that we're going to kind of like discuss today. I guess this is, uh, you, you know, um one of them but um if if you can kind of distill it to like you you know uh a few points um, or like a few pillars, even like because you can you elaborate on the points. But uh, you know, what are what are the fundamentals to succeeding in SaaS that, that you've learned?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you know I've learned from both getting it right and getting it wrong. And sometimes getting it wrong is, is a much better way of uh, learning. Although uh, m- much better if you can let somebody else do the getting it wrong. So yeah, I mean, I think what I've learned through through what has worked and, and what hasn't worked. Um, can be distilled into sort of a few a few key things that I, I'm pretty consistent on now um, in, in the businesses that I work in. Um, and one of those is being really careful about the niche that you pick. I mean, this is the creative bit, isn't it? It's when the idea arises. Um, but uh, it's really important, I think, to pick the right niche because, you know, fantastic execution, fantastic team, you know, on a on a fundamentally not that great premise can work um, and an awesome premise will actually let you make plenty of mistakes and, and one of the features that we have when we think about you know our niche our proposition is size of it and, you know, talking to VCs, it's always big is good, isn't it? You know, I've heard uh, investors say, we're not interested in unicorns anymore. It's decacorns. So I even heard somebody talking about a centacorn the other day. I mean, how you could plan to build a centacorn, $100 billion company from, from day one, I I do not know. But, uh, of course, if the area you're going into is really going to breed unicorns or uh, or or decacorns or centacorns or any other kind of corn, um, then lots and lots of other really seriously bright and well-backed people are going to come after you and try and kill you. So, you know, I think there's nothing like the kind of medium-sized market, really, where you can actually develop a a company that you're going to be able to create a great return for your investors and sell for, uh, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of pounds, but it's not necessarily so huge and so sexy that, everybody's going to come gunning for you. So I think pick your niche carefully. And I know it's controversial, but I don't think big is necessarily good. I love a good medium-sized market myself. Um, But I know that's very uh, very off-trend these days. So once you've got your niche, and I think it should be something you know about and you're passionate about, um, because you need that passion and that belief to sustain you through what will, you know, SaaS journeys are often a decade long, realistically, before the big exit check comes travelling in, and then you're probably going to have to do two years on the other side as well. So this has got to be something that that's really going to light your fire for a long a long period of time. But I think you know, having got in the right niche, understanding the proposition really in the mind of the customer, and this is sort of B2B, but really understanding, you know, what, How does the customer work? What drives them? So, you know, I made a mistake early in my career in SaaS of thinking too much about the kind of logical reasons why somebody might buy. Like, you know, we were trying to help business and government save hundreds of millions on procurement, on their major procurement projects. But, like, people weren't necessarily passionate about that at an individual level. Uh, And when you can show people at an individual level that it's actually going to help them, you know, deliver on time, get their job done, get their bonuses paid, make them look good internally, cover off compliance risks that their bosses were really, you know, um, passionate about and sensitive to, the business really started to grow. So I'm a great believer in understand your proposition, not just logically, but politically, emotionally, and personally, in the mind of of the, the the buyer and the right buyer, meaning the ideal customer and the right person within that in in that buyer. So being, you know, understanding the customer as much or more than the technology, I think, is really really important. So so proposition in the mind of the customer and utter focus on the customer. Um, but differentiation, I always talk about in the mind of the competitor. So you want a, you want to have a differentiator that your competitor has to say no, yeah, no, we don't do that. We really don't do that. Because in SaaS, everybody can say they can do everything, and they do say that all the time. So, yeah, well, we've got the best AI algorithm inside our, our SaaS world. Well, yeah, so what? So I think it's really good to ask the say what question a lot uh, and to really think of things that your competitor really has to admit that they can't or won't do. You know, that's people talk about the, the, the SaaS castle and the moat around the castle. You know, what is going to stop you? If you know a load of really super bright guys from Google leave, raise a hundred million dollars from the world's greatest VCs and come after you. That's actually happened to me. It's not a great day out. Um, so think about what that moat's going to be in, in advance. Um,
1: that, that that moat can be um, not just as you say, like the differentiator in the in the product. But also, I guess, the the community or the brand or, you, you know, the maybe right. followers of the, like, in, I, I think I remember like Des trainer speaking at London like earlier last year about the moat that Intercom have built, like by doing all these events and their content and looking at that as a moat, because they obviously have like a lot of uh, competitors uh, uh, as such. So is, is that something that you see?
0: Yeah, I mean, it can be a variety of things, you know, I, I've uh, had the privilege of working with some, um, you know, spin out companies from, from some some of uh, the UK's strongest universities and they've got an IP moat. they've got, a, you know, literally something that you couldn't copy, you know, you really, really couldn't and, and you know, 20 awesome Google engineers could leave and they still will not be able to copy it because it's just fundamentally rocket science so you know that can be a moat you can have an ip moat you can have a traction moat of course is which is what you're talking about as soon as you kind of get uh, you know any kind of network effect and everybody's using it and, and and people are talking about your thing rather than somebody else's thing um so you know i think you know you need a moat that's going to get you to a certain stage after that you know if you keep executing well things get things get easier just you have defensiveness just because just because of your kind of scale reputation brand and so on um you know i think stickiness is another moat it's a slightly different sort of moat that that means you know once you're once you're in you're in it's too much hassle to to take you out. you're really delivering value why would anyone want to go why would anyone want to go elsewhere so there's lots of different kinds of moats and they they're you know different different strategies for different companies um, and for different kinds of plays within SaaS my point, point really is you know be really clear that you need one and you need one more all the time because you know the, the underlying technologies of SaaS are maturing all the time. It's always getting easier and quicker to come in and disrupt. So, so really think about that. Um, think about uh, you know one, one investor I've worked with who who I who I like um, talk about the pre-mortem where they talk about how you, it's a bit a bit of a negative meeting, but you know it's a one-hour session on you know going forward in time to the point where you failed and thinking about how you got killed. You know, and that's a really good way of thinking about like how you're going to keep your moat strong you know who could get over it uh you know and as growth oriented entrepreneurial kind of positive type people it's easy for us not to not to think about that so i think you know differentiation in the mind of the competitor what is our competitor going to have to admit they can't or won't do and i think a good principle in terms of proposition and differentiation is to focus more than feels comfortable um you know again most of us who are entrepreneurs, we, we're opportunity-driven and we see this opportunity and that opportunity and that opportunity and that opportunity. We can't choose between them, so we go after all of them. I've been massively guilty of that in my career. Um, and, you know, I spend more time with my CEOs talking about, yeah, what we're not going to do than rather than what we are going to do. Um, so I think focus more than feels comfortable is another thing that I've learned quite painfully um, over the years. And I think, I think the other, this is probably a more obvious one, and uh, maybe all of them are obvious, but but, but ease of use and ease of adoption, adoption are just absolute table stakes these days. So, you know, if you've got a absolutely awesome bit of SaaS that's going to deliver mind blowing ROI, but it's a bit of a science project to get it up and running, it's not going to work. Whereas 10 years ago, that was absolutely fine. It just isn't anymore. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I suppose those are some of the main themes, Alex, that I think, uh, <laughs> that I th- I think are uh, a part of being sassy
1: they <laughs> they definitely uh you know five five great uh, i think pillars for uh, uh for for sas uh, success or the, you know the fundamentals and um you you know given your experience you know as a as a ceo uh you know what you've learned o- over that time you know across the, uh, the the various companies and you know one of them uh, successfully exiting um ag- again like you you know a, a ton of learnings that could probably you, you know uh, almost certainly be um, you know, shaped into uh, a, a book. Um, uh, but like, what what are the kind of key learnings that you've had for, from a CEO perspective? Um, you know, what what's uh, what's great? You know, being a CEO. What what's the hard things? Um, uh, I'm sure there's well, there's a lot, right? But. Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, I think being CEO is the best job in the world and the worst job in the world. Um, so I think my experience of being a CEO all, all, all across all that time is, you know, it's the job I've done actually more than any other job in my, in my career. Uh, and when it's, uh, when it's going well it can be just the most incredible thing you know it's it's a, you're you're creating something you know i guess i'll never i'm never going to be an artist or a musician or anything but you know creating a business that have a, has a life of its own and, and enabling sort of customers to achieve great things in their own careers and building people up in in your business and you know happy investors happy customers happy employees Uh, and being right at the heart of all that is just the best thing ever, it really is. Equally, like being at the heart of a load of disappointed investors, unhappy customers and and employees who, you know, the company's not growing fast enough to meet their ambitions, that's kind of not fun. So, you know, I think if you can be killing it, it really does help. But if I look back with, you know, with honesty on my sort of 23 years in, in startups, I reckon I was killing it maybe one year in three you're in four something like that and actually when you're killing it there's plenty of problems associated with sort of growth and uh, and, and and the problems that go with success and you know the rest of the time it, it has been quite a struggle actually uh, and probably the one thing you know about being a CEO that I, I again I wish I'd listened the first the first uh, tech startup I worked in got a fantastic uh, 115 million dollar uh, um exit and I've been with that from sort of person 23 to person, um, about 300, I think, when we, when we sold it. And I remember asking the founder, I said, like, what have you learned? I thought, well, I'm going to listen now. Cause I, and he said, it's all about people. Is absolutely all about people. It's not about technology. Don't start thinking the technology business is about technology. It's all about people. And I I kind of wish I hadn't sort of then had to go and explore for so many years that that was actually correct. So, um, you know, I think in terms of the experience of being a CEO and being, you know, enjoying it and being good at it is is getting the people thing right, really. Because, you know, after all, our customers are people, our employees are people, our co-founders are people, our investors are people. And and getting that dynamic, that people dynamic right makes such a... uh, such a massive difference, I think, to performance as a, as a CEO and enjoyment of the role, really.
1: If you don't, if you don't mind me asking, then, um, you, you know, why, you know, after 18 years of, of, of being a CEO, did you decide, you know, for the, the, this kind of change of career and to work with, with CEOs? Um, what... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that
0: is an interesting question. And, uh, you know, I do think it is, um, you know, it's a tough job. Uh, and it takes a lot out of you, and uh, you know, I did it for did it for eighteen years, and I also did it without a break, which I think was a big mistake. So, my advice to anyone exiting is like go straight to the beach and uh, you know sit there, or, or, or do whatever you do to sort of relax and recharge. I never did that. I went into quite a big corporate job with the the business that bought our business, you know, with four hundred odd people and you know nearly hundred million dollars of revenue at the time, um, and you know that was easier than being a a, a SaaS startup CEO by miles but it was hardly you know at rest and recuperate and then I went straight back into uh, being a startup ceo only with doing a non-exec career on the side as well so I kind of didn't hit the pause button at all in 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 that time and uh, in the last couple of years of of being a ceo I really found that I was enjoying the limited amount of sort of non-exec work I was doing more than being a ceo so you know I think the minute you start to have any doubt in your mind about whether it's what you want to do or not you really you do need to fire yourself really and and start thinking about a succession plan and and, and so on because you know you you need a lot of energy coming from 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 inside to to do that and you have to have the passion to do it so yeah, I just had this dawning realization that um you know I was looking at a new face really which was you know and and I found um the support I got from my chairman and my coaches um over the years, really, I mean, it really, I don't think I'd got my exit if I hadn't had my coach. Um, and so I thought that, you know, that's something I'd really like to learn to do and to, to help other people, um, you know, so I can help people carry that big rucksack of rocks that is being a CEO rather than rather just find myself, you know, a brand new one um, again.
1: And and, and and you mentioned there, like, the uh, having the coach and that being, like, a fundamental part to... Uh, to your success uh, you, you know on your, on your journey of being a CEO over the 18 years um, you, you know what else uh, you, you know sort of helped you um, I, I guess you, you know uh, th- throughout your career as, uh, uh, as a CEO?
0: So I think um, you know I mentioned, mentioned having a coach but coach is a category of somebody who supports you in the role so I think no, it is good to have a have a some some kind of supporting characters around you, and that can come from from a number of different places. Really, board and chairman, I think getting that right is really uh, is really important. And often, you know, as CEOs, we can actually um, not want a strong board because they're going to give us trouble. But actually, a strong board is really really good because what they do is they give us. They give us grief while there's still time to to do something about it. So, you know, I think a strong board, not necessarily an easy board, but a strong board and a strong chairman um, is a really good thing. You know, a coach is a really key thing. Having some trusted colleagues. So, you know, I worked with uh, a guy called Richard for 23 years. You know, he was like my right-hand man for more than two decades uh, and, you know, would trust him with my life. And just having, you know, having some colleagues like that um around you is really uh, is really super helpful as well as is having the right personal assistant so i think you know the importance of a of a of a, of a assistant or executive assistant can be really under played and it can be seen as you know a minor role i don't think it is i think it's a massive massive role if you get the right person um and it can really help you so i think you know being successful is about about you know having the right supporting characters around you at all all levels really in the organization from the from the highest paid board member to the lowest paid sort of exec assistant all of those people can make a huge difference to the journey and I think another thing that's quite important is self-awareness so you know like everybody I've got strengths and I've got weaknesses and uh, you know I've got some some good personal strengths I think when it comes to Uh, Being a CEO, you know, I I was pretty good at fundraising. I seem to be pretty good at sort of understanding complex business situations and strategizing and and having some, I think, reasonable people judgment. I'm also, like, terrible at, like, um, attention to detail, you know, sustained focus on something like a project management plan. Just, I would be a disaster. So I think knowing yourself is quite important too and making sure that the people you have around you complement your strengths so that you can play to your strengths rather than um, having to sort of mitigate your weaknesses all the time. So, yeah, I think su- su- support is super important. Knowing yourself is pretty when, important too.
1: When should a, in your opinion, should a CEO get a, a coach or like an exec coach? Um, uh, and also, actually, I'm just curious, like when should uh, a CEO get uh, an executive assistant as well? Like you know, when it, when, it, when is the the right time is there a certain size that you've seen with you you know the companies that you work with or that you experienced when you know either of these things are you know come into play so I think
0: a coach is something, or a mentor. I mean, maybe your first coach you don't actually pay. You know, it's a mentor who's naturally in your network. So my first coach was 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 really the two. You know, the two founders of the business I worked in before I co-founded myself for the first time. You know, that they they in fact invested in me. They didn't charge me anything, but they were kind of, I guess, my mentors. And 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 I had a, we had a really early chairman in uh, in. Uh, in, in commerce decisions and it's definitely the right thing to do so I guess my answer to that as soon as you possibly can particularly the coach or mentor I think you can have one of those before you even do anything you know before you even get a co-founder possibly or before you even, you know it's I just think you know there are lots of great minds around who you can tap into um, who can help you with fundamental decisions so you know I don't think I think having an assistant um, kind of helping you with your admin and all that kind of stuff you don't necessarily need that I think you know I, once you've raised a million say a slightly arbitrary number but what what we uh, you know what a, a decent sized seed round I think do it because you know I remember one afternoon I spent like booking a few flights and you know I guess now I'm fi- finding it again now I'm independent you know I've spent like um i booked a few flights i like did a load of expenses and you know i I, i'm spending like loads uh, Now i don't have a pa for the first time in in 20 years you know it it takes a load of time which you could spend on doing something much more strategic so yeah as soon as possible on on all fronts really as soon as you can afford it and if you can't blag blag the help (laughs) as much as you can
1: (laughs) Uh, absolutely and I, i i agree with uh, everything there, but in fact, like I mean, we're we're not a SaaS company, obviously. But uh, you know, uh, I I've been you know thinking about getting in a an exec coach as we enter you know to our fourth year, you know, as a business. Uh, but like I think, not having a, a coach or a mentor for the first three years is something that I mean, you know, it, it is what it is. But it would have like you know, I, I think really kind of like helped us. Um, you know, not avoid. Well, or, sorry, avoid. You know, uh, a, a ton of mistakes that that you know that we've made along the way, um, and I think you know just accelerated uh, learning. You know, as a uh, you know as a uh, as a founder and, and CEO, so definitely something that um, uh, I, I I would recommend. Um, you, you talked about um, you know the, C, the the role of the CEO being. Uh, you know, it's the best job, and it's also, also the worst job. And you know, it has the highs and it has the lows. Um, you, you know, what are the uh, what are some of the struggles that you've personally had? You know, uh, as a CEO, um, uh, maybe even some of the, the struggles that you commonly see uh, as well in SaaS CEOs. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm sort
0: of unique in saying that. Um you know it is all about people and and people is where a lot of things go wrong so i mean i think i think the kind of the scientific studies have shown that that uh, startup failure um, you know people conflict and co-founder issues and so on are, are some of the most challenging uh, sort of barriers to 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 startups meeting their true potential uh, and I've been, you know, I've been, haven't been let off. I can't say that I've had a 23 years of total peace and harmony with every single person that I've had the pleasure of, uh, you know, working with. And I think, you know, you do sit there as a CEO in the middle of your customers, your employees, the, the management team, your co founders, your investors. And as a CEO, people, you know, aren't happy with you all the time. They're just not. And and as a CEO, you see you need to have a certain amount of empathy and and, and 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 sort of human attributes to be able to sort of read the people around you. And and you know, with that empathy can can come the ability to take perhaps too much of those sentiments on board sometimes and it can be quite wearing on your own your own psyche. And it's sometimes it's not even it's not even outright conflict it's like i know my kids say to me dad it's you know if you yell at us that's fine if you're disappointed with us that's terrible and i feel the same about my investors really i just hated disappointing my my investors who trusted me with 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 lots of money and uh so yeah whether it's outright contract conflict or just um you know just things not being as great as you would like them to be i think it's yeah yeah, as a CEO, you kind of sit in the hub in the middle of an awful lot of other human beings, and and that is a source of quite a bit of struggle. And I, th- I think the worst one is where, as a CEO, you become completely reliant for whatever reason, whether it's their technical skills or um, you know their relationships or whatever it is, with somebody whose behaviours or performance just aren't aren't making you happy, but you can't really do anything about it because you know you're the CEO, you're responsible. But if you're responsible for you know some performance and behaviour that you feel you can't control. I think that's that's a really hard dynamic, and I've seen that. You know, I've seen that myself, and I've seen that in a lot of with a lot of other people that I've um, that I've worked with. And I think that's particularly tricky. Also, quite often there are you know there are there are people dysfunctionalities that we could fix, but we don't because it's too difficult. Um, and I, and I, and I've seen a lot of that both in my own my own decision making and uh, in in the CEOs that I've. I've helped over the years, or or, or been in peer groups with, and so on. I think, uh, yeah, I think some of that conflict is probably unavoidable, and some of it is avoidable. But we we avoid it. Uh, you know, we avoid avoid extreme short term conflict to to live with an underlying level of kind of attritional conflict, which is not good for anybody uh, involved. If that makes sense.
1: No, makes make sense. So, I mean, but in terms of the. Um, so like people was a big, a, a big deal. Um, you, you know, uh, also, uh, what about, uh, I guess not, like not running out of money, yeah,
0: that's um, yeah. a that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, early in my career of being an entrepreneur, I did run out of money for the first time, I and, and I remember a conversation with our prospective investors, which went along the lines of, John, you've nearly run out of money. Well, yes, I have. Well, let, let's introduce you, John, to the golden rule, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. So at this point, you need our money, and that means the terms on which we're willing to invest are going to be rather driven by the fact that you were screwed um and and it
1: At was open about it straightforward
0: straightforward and uh, yeah i mean there was much less there was much less competition uh, between vcs and, and and investors back in those days so uh, you know now if you you probably could move on to another investor and it's probably not quite as not quite as stark as that but it gave me a really profound understanding that the number one job of the ceo is not to run out of money really And as long as you don't run out of money you've you, you know you've got a runway you can make decisions you can do stuff you know I, I've, I've been there again, but you know, I've never, I've, I've done that. We've got a hundred days left. What we're going to do with them kind of a few times during the, during my journey, but you know, you can do a lot in a hundred days. You can't do much in 48 hours or a week really. So yeah, keep that runway, keep that runway long. And you know, when I, when I did my exit, if I'm, I didn't even do the maths, but I'm sure if I hadn't overfunded the company a bit, that the, what I would have made on the exit would have been better by maybe 10 or 20% or something. But you know what? I just didn't care. You know, I would I had, nearly a million dollars in the bank at all times during, during the seven year journey. And it just, I just slept better. Um, and again, that's probably a bit of a controversial thing to say because I know we're meant to spend the money really quickly to, to create mega growth, but I'm a big, call me old fashioned maybe, but I'm a big fan of like not running out of money and, and and, and, and not looking like I'm going to run out of money either. Um So yeah, I, I ran out, you know, my first experience of running short on the old uh, on the old cash was painful enough to make me not want to do it um too often so yeah i mean that's a that that is a horrible struggle and uh you know i didn't didn't want to do that again and I think the other main source of struggle probably is competitors so you know and this is something you know having been a sas kind of entrepreneur in the noughties and then doing it again in this decade, there's a huge difference, you know, AWS and all the different open source layers and, and, uh, you know, Azure and all all these tools that you can use as building blocks now in a SaaS system are absolutely amazing compared with, you know, building on tin um, back in the day. But they do mean, you know, people can enter the market very, very easily. So, you know, we've talked about the moat. Um, It's easy to disrupt and that feels great. Um, it's also very easy to be disrupted and that that doesn't feel so great so uh, you know competitors can appear and become you know very well known and very powerful in your space incredibly quickly
1: what Um, about uh, 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 advice then for founders that are having you know one or maybe all three of those struggles uh right um what what would you say uh, to those that that are listening that are going through um you know either people issues conflicts you know people conflict cash struggles or or competitor struggles yeah um
0: so i would say try and keep calm keep perspective so losing your cool you know everybody's watching you as the ceo and they you know it's just that you know how we watch the flight attendants in the plane if the plane is bumping around a bit and it's making noises that we're unfamiliar with you know and they're, they're, they're sitting there looking really chilled and we go okay that's fine go, go back to reading the kindle you know everybody does that um in your startup as well so people will be really watching you and it's really important to keep a certain sense, sense of calm um while it's all you know while it's all going on um and I think something, again, the founder, who was my original mentor, said to me, nothing's ever as bad as it seems or as good as it seems. And, I, you know, that's been true. You know, I've had some, some amazing highs uh, and some, some pretty severe lows. But, but you know, it's, it's been fine. Um, so try and keep that perspective. And I think the fight or flight, the fight and flight sort of chemicals that go off when we get in these sort of situations close in our perspective a lot and make us just focus like, you know, we we, we tend to forget about the bigger picture of our health and our families and, uh, you know, the the things that really matter in life. So uh, keep calm, keep some perspective, you know, think about how this is going to look in five years' time, probably would have forgotten about it or it will be part of your story that you'll be on, uh, you know, Alex's podcast telling everybody about, but it's not going to be sort of super present at that particular the moment, So yeah, keep calm, keep some perspective. And I think the other thing, this is perhaps harder to do, is trade sort of short-term pain for long-term benefit. So, you know, say a relationship's not working out and it's causing you constant sort of stress on a daily basis. Um, you know, firing that person might be the most awful thing, and it might result in many hours of screaming and yelling, or maybe one hour of screaming and yelling, and, and, and a few lawyer letters, you know, or whatever it's. But it's going to be done, uh, and then that, and then that stress is gone out of your life. So I think we often um, overplay in our minds the painfulness of doing. You know, we're going to exit that market. We're not, you know, we're going to have to exit America. It's terrible, you know, exit France or or, or fire that person or that, that, you know, or we're going to we're not going to do those three propositions anymore. We're just going to do that one proposition, or you know, we're not going to have Fred and Jim working together anymore. It's going to be Jim's show, and Fred's going to have to accept that. You know, things like that. Just just if they need doing, just do them because. You know, it's, it, it, you get a 100 times ROI on the pain you take earlier. So, uh, I think it's in the the, the famous startup book, which which everybody should read. The hard thing about hard things, I think he he says this a lot as well. It's just like if you've got two courses of action, do the hard one because it will turn out to be the easy one. Um, and uh, yeah, I wish I'd sort of executed on that every time because um, that's really helped.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think definitely the hard thing about the hard things from uh, Ben Horowitz is probably probably the number one most sort of referenced, like favourite book from, you know, SaaS CEOs and uh, rightly so uh, uh, as well. So for those that are listening that have never read it, you know, go and grab yourself a, cof- uh, a copy uh, and a coffee if you want to uh, uh, um, uh, get through it quickly. Um, and you, you, the first point you kind of mentioned there about, you know, keeping calm – you know, in situations, you know, is there uh, is it okay for a CEO, or when is it okay for a sassy? You know, not you know, not to keep calm. You know, uh, uh, is is it ever okay? Like, you know, can can you lose your cool? You know, everyone's human. Um, you, you know, ha, what, what what's your opinion on that? And, yeah,
0: I mean, I think if you do it very, very rarely, and perhaps a little bit deliberately, having thought about the consequence of it, um, it can be a tool. It can be a tool that's useful. Um, I think if you do it in an uncontrolled or regular way, it's culturally really bad, a really bad thing, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm i probably somebody who loses their temper about once every, uh, I don't know, once every six years or something. I'm pretty <laughs> level-headed, really. Um, but I, when it does happen, yeah, I mean, a few times people have thought, well, actually, John's really serious about that because he doesn't normally behave that way. But But on the whole, it's not added a lot of value to the, to the situation i would uh, i would say um i mean not having consequences for people's behavior or performance you know not being in line with the culture and objects of the organization you know that's really important so you know i think consequences need to be delivered but a consequence of being yelled at is not not a, you know i don't think that's a really beneficial consequence i think you know giving giving people um you know for feedback in a one-to-one situation and, and if necessary firing them if they're not going to really get on the get on the train and fit in with the company are the right things to do. I don't, I don't yelling at anyone tends to add a lot of value. Um, I, mean, I think if you want to go home and like, you know, I don't, please don't shout at the wife and kids, but you know, shout at the trees in the back garden or, uh, you know, go, go to a boxer size class or whatever. I mean, I think there's ways to let it out that, that are more helpful than, uh, than, than losing your cool in, the uh, in the office.
1: You, you mentioned you mentioned earlier in terms of your first mentors were, uh, I guess, the, the founders of that the, the company that you were working for before you became an entrepreneur, <clears throat> and um, and subsequently you've had you, you know exec coaches uh, as well on your journey. But how do people go about finding mentors and exec coaches?
0: Yeah, well, the way I did it actually was uh, my investors were terribly keen on me having a chairman. And this is when I I guess I was 29, 30 at the time. I thought I need a chairman like a hole in the head. I've just taken this huge risk with my career so that I can be the CEO and I have people telling me what to do. And I was worried a chairman would would tell me what to do, which is, of course, rubbish. And I learned that over the, over the years. But I kind of, I but what I did as a consequence of that kind of misconception actually worked really well for me because so I, I I kind of went and did a chairman search and talked to some potential chairman of the business. And then the one that I liked the most, I said, you know what, I don't really want a chairman, but I'd love you to be my coach. I'd love to work with you just two hours a month. Uh, you know, would you be up for that? I think it would be fun. I, you know, I pay I'll pay a cracking hourly rate for it. Uh, and the guy agreed and, you know, I worked with him for over 10 years and he was, I almost feel guilty of the fact that he didn't get any equity in the business. Um, but, uh, you know, my, but but the fact that he was a chairman as well as a coach um, was absolutely brilliant for me because I think, you know, you don't need the experience of being a CEO to be a CEO coach, but if you don't have it, you're bringing more, I would say, the coaching skills, the therapeutic skills, helping people reflect and helping people think, which is really Really important, but actually you don't have the power of shared experience. So um, you know, if it, my my coach, because he'd been there and done that, you know, I'd talk into a situation, I'd be all uptight, and he would talk. So, well, yeah, I mean, that's something. Something similar happened to me a couple of times, and relate the story. This is what I did and why, uh, and you can kind of play with that experience. The first thing it does is creates perspective. Um, so you think, okay, so you know, I thought this was something really really bad that just happened to me only in a very personal way rather than it being a very general sort of business situation whatever it's oh yeah well you know the five times i've had super aggressive lawyer letters sent to me this is what i did you know it just that just the fact that it's happened to somebody who you trust before just reduces the temperature and then you can look at what they did and 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 how it how it ended sometimes well sometimes badly so you do need a you do need a coach who's willing to be you know willing to be open about their own their own mistakes uh, and then I'd work with him to come up with a plan and some of those plans were great and he would hold me to account as well you know and we'd talk about well what are you going to do about it John okay well I really need to do this well are you going to do it yeah so next month when we sit down uh, we'll have a chat about what you did is that what you want yeah I want to do that and it just you know when you don't you know when you don't have people telling you what to do because you do have the autonomy and freedom of being the CEO it's, it's good to have that kind of voluntary accountability to to a coach uh and having somebody who who you know was older more experienced um than me I, I found really really useful so yeah i mean i don't know whether that's a repeatable hint or tip for uh anyone to sort of start a chairman search and then degrade it down into a into just a just a uh a, a coach search um the other thing is you know a practical way of doing it is to talk to other people who've got a great coach you know in your in your network, um, and it's hard when we're really busy to actually devote a lot of effort into meeting the right coach as well. Because, but having the right one versus the wrong one, I think, is really important. So, you know, go and chat to a few um, different coaches, see how the chemistry, uh, see how the chemistry goes. Really, would be my recommendation on that. But, but for me, and it is just for me, there's real power in shareable experience. So, you want the person you're dealing with; they don't have to have run a maybe they don't even need to run a SAS company necessarily but they need to have done something sufficiently similar to have shareable experience with you
1: were, were there any times uh, during your eighteen years as CEO that you felt like giving up uh, and I guess second part to to that was you know were your executive coaches and mentors you know if you did ever feel like giving up you know were they there like on hand to you know talk about that feelings or did you share those feelings or were you scared to actually I can't share these feelings because um, you, you know I've got you know VC money in the company, uh, etc. You, you know, like how how would you deal with uh, deal with those thoughts? Yeah, I mean that's what a coach is
0: brilliant for. So if you if you can't share those kind of you know existential existential kind of um, anxieties with your coach, you haven't got the right coach. You shouldn't be holding anything back from your coach. So yeah, you know, well yes, I did feel like giving up quite often, really during. Well, I say quite often there, there were there were a number of periods over that eighteen years that it that, that it wasn't it wasn't great. And yes, I did share those experiences with the uh, with my coach. In fact, you know when I actually did end my CEO career, because I didn't end it with an exit, I ended it with, this, with a CEO change, which I think was absolutely the right thing for the company and the right thing for me. But I worked with my coach to talk about you know how could I do that in a way that was going to be was going to be okay, you know, and in accordance with my values, and in, with accordance with my respect for investor money and you know the the interests of the company and so on. So, you know, something that you know starts as a bad feeling can turn into a into a really positive plan. I think if you've got the right got the right coach, and sometimes it's like you won't, you know, you know that's only one one occasion in my entire career where I, where I've done something as as fundamental as that. I guess. Um, Quite often, your coach can just give you a pat on the back and a, and, and, a, and a cup of tea and tell you you're great, which people don't tend to do very often when you're the CEO, uh, and send you on your way and, and help you gain some perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think a coach can help you with, you know, when you're going through doubt, which really you should get through, but also, you know, if you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, or, or you know, you need to, you really do need to sell your company, or 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 change a key person even yourself um your coach can be great on that you don't have to do what they say which is the beautiful thing about it as well you know it's a they're they're kind of helping you reflect and think about your own your own uh, position um so yeah i mean i i i probably was coached through maybe uh, probably 12 or 13 years of my executive career and sometimes i'd go from a monthly chat and i think oh that was a bit of a waste of waste of a trip um, sometimes I'd get something out of it, and at other times I got something from it that was absolutely fundamental to the direction of the uh, of the business, really. Um, and when I did find myself killing it, I felt less need for for coaching, and I did. That's when I took some gaps. I think that was a mistake, actually. Um, you just kind of keep on. Uh, it's like you know, saying like, I feel really great, so I'm going to stop exercising. It's a bit like that, really.
1: Talk, talking of a, a good segue there to to exercising, but you, you know the. The, the mental and physical um uh, i guess sort of preservation like needed uh, to be a ceo a sas ceo um you, what did you do to like preserve your, your mental and physical well-being and like you know what what do you sort of recommend to uh, you know other ceos uh, as well around this topic
0: Yeah, well, I think it's a really key topic and I'm really, really pleased that it's becoming a bit more acceptable, I think, culturally to talk about it now, um, which perhaps at the start of my CEO career really wasn't. Um, And, you know, those fight or flight chemicals, they, you know, if if you're in any way typical, they'll be flooding around your body body a lot, uh, you know, when you're CEO and you're constantly dealing with crisis and threats and, and, and conflicts and those chemicals are out to get you, you know. These days, you know, we when when we have a SaaS outage, you know, we don't need to run away from the lion, um, but that still kind of happens in our in our body, and it is actually really bad. Um, and I've talked about my uh, original mentor, and you know, he, he he made a great deal of money and ran a successful company and was a was a wonderful leader. Uh, and you know, a few handful of years after the exit, he, he went to uh, uh, you know went to buy a sandwich and died of a heart attack. Um, and that really got me thinking about um health and well being and you know um you know that 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 guy just created an awesome company and and played an awesome part in the lives of you know several hundred employees but you know i I wondered how to what extent there was a connection between the between that and uh, and and his health and you know i 've seen it happen to another guy that I work with closely who sadly passed away in his fifties so i th- you know i think it 's a real problem. Uh, and myself, when I, when I've raised money, I remember those, <laughs> I don't know if people remember the week where there was a, there was a sniper running around in Washington DC, randomly shooting people. And one of my investors, obviously having a heart of gold, phoned me up and knew I was going over just to check my key man insurance was in place. Um, and uh prompted me to actually get on and get my key man insurance in place and this was i was probably only in my mid-30s and like my blood pressure and stuff was all a bit shot to bits and i was really quite surprised that there were some early signs that the ceo lifestyle and i really wasn't exercising i was working all the time it was not doing me a lot of good so um I, I had to address this issue really and uh very simple answer was actually running so you know i was about 18 stone when when this happened and uh you know, I'm six foot three. I'm a big guy. And, and, and I was like, I'm just not sporty at all. I'm just, just the world's biggest, biggest sort of uncoordinated sort of lump, really. But, uh, yeah, I started running and the first day I couldn't run to the end of my road. And six months later, I ran my first half marathon. And it was absolutely transformational for me in terms of my energy levels, my stress levels um my my gut size um just was the most awesome thing you know something as simple as running so I culturally instituted it in the company and said right we're going to go running at lunchtime which was you know back in 2000 whenever it was three or four was mad you know people didn't do lunchtime runs there and you know culturally it became people would look through our we had like floor-to-ceiling glass people would be looking through all these lycra clad um tech people like going and running around the the park and it was brilliant it, you know we would talk to each other we'd have running meetings it, it, you know it was culturally great and i'm absolutely convinced you get more done in a day when you run 5k at lunchtime than if you don't run 5k at lunchtime and just keep working so yeah running has been something i'm i'm passionate about um i've never been good at it you know i've lost every single half marathon that i've ever entered with colleagues i always sort of come uh, last or second last but that, that hasn't mattered um, and I've kept that going now for for many years. Um, so very simple, but yeah, that's the number one thing I've done is is go running, and I absolutely recommend it. And if I can do it, any normal shaped person uh, can definitely uh, definitely give it a try. And if running's not your thing, and it wasn't my thing, go do it for a month before you decide it's not your thing, as well, because the first two weeks are absolutely miserable, utterly horrific. But uh, do it for a month, and 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 you might be surprised.
1: What about, um, I mean, it's very popular these days, like mindfulness and meditation, like a lot of, a lot of people we have on the show, uh, you know, do some form of like, you know, meditation via like either one of the apps or, uh, um, maybe they're just, a, you know, a bit more kind of experience of that, but was that ever something uh, for you or something beneficial that you found?
0: I totally believe in the science of it, actually, uh, Alex, and I kind of wish I did do a better job on it. I mean, when I did the lunchtime running, I would always run to a particular point down the, down the river and I would just stop and be very sort of still and just watch the scenery for maybe one or two minutes, watch watch a leaf floating down the river or whatever and just try and totally clear my head of uh, MMR, AIR, and customers and, and things like that. So that's really the nearest I ever got to mindfulness. Um, but I do believe in, like, you know, Entrepreneurial personality types often find it really hard to, to do that. So, the way I actually clear my mind is to fill it with other activities. So, if I, you know, I uh, in my forties I learned how to snowboard, which again was a bit of a crazy thing to do. I definitely ate a lot of snow, but I just find I go to the mountain and and snowboard, and and it is. It is pure mindfulness for me because, you know, you get this instant feedback loop of if you start thinking about work, you're on your ass. So, uh, you know, and you're out in the, in the, in the beautiful, the beautiful surroundings of the, of the mountain or even one of the indoor fridges. It's not, not so beautiful, but you still get the same effect. So, you know, I, I don't believe in sitting on the beach, actually. Um, I said earlier about doing it, um, and, and it, or it is obviously a good thing. But I think those of us who have busy minds, it can be, you know, the, the meditation can be really hard. So I guess I'm a kind of entry level of, of distraction so, sort of mindfulness rather than proper mindfulness. Um, so, uh, well, yeah, maybe if you have me back on the show in a few years, I'll have cracked the mindfulness thing. But it's one of those things where I totally believe in it, but I've not, I've not nailed it yet. If I'm uh, if I'm totally honest,
1: yeah, so that's right. I mean, I, like personally, uh, I've, I've been well. I've got both Calm and Headspace on my phone. I actually haven't used the the Calm meditation part of the the app yet, but rather I've had uh, people like Stephen Fry and Matthew McConaughey tell me a bedtime story uh, when, uh, when I've been having problems, uh, sleeping, listen to them talk about lavender and things like that. Um, but, um, not to, not to mock it cause it actually, it actually works. Um, it does. Uh, yeah. And, um, uh, but headspace, uh, I've, I've used and been going like through the programs, but I just find I'm, I'm not very consistent, uh, at it. And, uh, you know, I've done it on the train and just tried to see, you know, is anybody actually looking at me or do they realize when my eyes are closed that, you know, I'm, I'm meditating, uh, you know, for 10 minutes and, and doing some funny breathing. But um, uh, it's something I, I, I want to do more of because uh, you do feel the benefits uh, uh, of it. So.
0: Yeah. And you touched on sleep there, which I think is a hugely important um, subject. And, you know, I've had long periods of my career where my sleep has been troubled, I think, because of, uh, you know, mind being busy with work things. And um, I read, I read a book recently, Why We Sleep. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Is it? cracking read and you, you read that and you realize okay that the extent to which sleep is um you know is attached to our performance and our health is just you know is really a scientific factor these days um and, and that changed my thinking a lot about a lot about sleep and you know i track it quite rigid- religiously with my fitbit and it's it's a kpi now in my uh, in my life um so i think you know alongside exercise and mindfulness and diet sleep is a is a kpi we should care about a lot
1: you you've, you've spoken um uh, a lot before around uh, resilience and the fact that it's not an infinite resource yeah um, tell us a little bit more about that yeah i mean i remember
0: um sort of when when it started to become okay to talk about stuff like this i remember investors saying well you now our approach to mental health in startups is to hire resilient people you know you just you're resilient or you're not and you know if we're putting money into your company you've got to be resilient And that's just what it is and i think that's you know that that's kind of the old way of thinking about this. Perhaps uh, I'm sure it's true. I mean, it's better to be a resilient person than a not a resilient person. And you know, being a CEO of a SaaS company is not for everybody. Uh, and and uh, you you do need quite a bit of resilience. But my view is, it doesn't matter if you're the most resilient person in the world. You know, you do need to treat your resilience level as as, as something you can use. So. Um, I think we all have a different kind of amount of it. If you you imagine a bucket full of resilience, um, you know, everybody's got a bucket. It might be a big bucket or a small bucket. And, uh, you know, we can pour stuff in the top to make us more resilient, if you like, to to top up our resilience. And we can also try try and, you know, if if you like, plug the holes in the bucket just to to stop using up resilience. So I think that's a really helpful way to think about resilience and and to think about, you know, there are going to be times um in our journeys where we are going to use that resilience up at a fast rate so we can do sprints where we you know we start late and we work all day and we work all night and we don't talk to our significant others and you know you you can do that but if you're aware you're you're draining the bucket of resilience um i think that's important you know and, and overwork and stress and conflict lack of sleep lack of holidays um poor relationships at work and at home um uh, those things can just use up our resilience now you know when we've got a virus in the winter we have less resilience uh at that at that point so you know resilience management i think you know again i think think of it like a KPI. you know think every month maybe with your coach you know what what have i done to pour some resilience in you know this month okay you know well i've i've been snowboarding for two days and uh you know i, I had a weekend away with the family and uh you know i've achieved achieved seven seven hours 15 minutes you know average on sleep or whatever it is but just and everybody's different but i think it's really important to be thinking about how we're filling up the bucket of um the bucket of resilience and what's interesting is you know quite often it's not either there or not there it also starts to run out slowly so i think you know when when you're down to you know when the fuel gauge on the on the on the uh, on resilience is is starting to to flash uh and it needs refilling you know performance starts to be affected and what comes out is our stress behaviors so you know we all have behaviors you know how we behave when we're in flow and we're and and everything's going well and you know then we have average behaviors and then I think we have stress behaviors you know when resilience is is running out and those tend to be not pretty so you know my stress behaviors I become a little bit morose and a little bit withdrawn you know other people might become angry or start blaming other people or you know whatever it is but it's rarely that our stress behaviors are better than our healthy behaviors uh, and, of course, when everybody starts hitting their stress behaviours at the same time, it then goes into a really negative sort of feedback loop. So, you know, and I think if we if we run the bucket out completely, we can stuff our mental health up. And, uh, you know, that does happen even to to those of us who consider ourselves to be you know, quite resilient executives. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the way I think about it. And I didn't think about it like that 15 years ago. Uh, I'm much more active in managing it now and I think you can get away with it more when you're 25 than when you're 45 as well um you know I'm not being ageist in saying that you know I think I think the age I am now I have much better judgment but a bit less energy and it's just natural naturally part of the 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 journey of life isn't it um and and it's worth kind of thinking about that as well from a you you can run longer and harder sprints I think um on, on resilience when you're a bit when you're a bit younger
1: so, so ways to top up the resilience and the, the the resilience bucket. Then, like as you said, like things like getting good sleep, having a holiday, um, any other kind of. Things? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think booze doesn't help build resilience. Booze can be really great at the you know nice half bottle of nice cool white wine at the end of a stressful day at the office. It's great, but it's not that so that's deducting from the bucket it's not adding to the to the bucket so you know uh, i drink a lot less than i used to and i think i think that's a good thing um, but i think also getting support so you know having a great coach a great chairman a, a great PA if possible um a great life partner you know I've, I've been blessed with that over the last decade or so and it has really helped me um you know to be resilient so you know being supported I think breaks you know like a two-week break is great it might just be utterly unrealistic at early stages of company uh, development but like a, you know an action-packed four-day sort of weekend um you know for me it's snowboarding or sailing but whatever whatever it is there will be a change of context um, you know can be really, really good. Another thing is forum, so you know forum is the idea of and it 's run there 's various different commercial and non nonprofit service providers that that do this. Um, where, you know, you have normally six to eight CEOs in, in a group bound by commitments for each other and absolute confidentiality that, that meet once a month or, you know, we'll, we'll, what's happened stuff in a crisis. Um, you know, I'm both a member of one of those um, and, and I'm a chairman of one of those um, in, a, in another organisation. That can be a really powerful way to be more resilient and, and to get help and get support. I think also having a plan can help. It sounds a strange thing to say, but, you know, we were talking about do you ever feel like giving up? But, you know, if you've got a plan that says, you know, I'm going to give this another year, I'm going to do this, this and this, and this is how I'm going to measure whether, you know, course of action A or course of action B. I think, you know, if you've got a a clear plan about where you're going um, and then, you know, events happen, you can think, okay, well, this is data that I'm going to feed into my plan and my decision rather than thinking, this is a calamitous thing that's happened to my ego or a really brilliant thing that's happened to me. If you can kind of see events as fitting into the framework of a plan that you've made. And I remember doing that with my, with my coach and and my chairman, you know, having a plan for the future that you're then sort of working on that again can be helpful in making you resilient and can help keep that perspective.
1: Can, Can CEOs succeed without having, you know, much resilience?
0: No, I mean, I do think you need, unless you're extraordinarily lucky, I think you do, you know, you do need a decent sized bucket of resilience in your in your psyche, I think, uh, or I think it's helpful to have that. But I do also think that, you know, I've, I've talked about there about how how do you fill up the bucket of resilience, but also, you know, there are ways of actually using less of your, you know, less of those capacities of resilience. Um, so, you know, when you're killing it, you need to, you can be less resilient. You know, you use up less resilience. So there's nothing like you know. People talk about success breed success, and I think this is one of the reasons it does. Is you know, we all we all behave better when we're succeeding, and it's much easier to share out um, the glory than it is to share out the blame. And uh, so you know, fundamentally, what what we started at right at the top of the of today's uh, program around you know doing the right things to succeed as a SaaS CEO in terms of the right niche, the right product. Uh, positioning the right differentiation the you know the right technology the right focus um getting that right less resilience is <laughs> is required and, and and you know a business with fundamentally good, good dynamics that needs less needs less willpower to to succeed but i think you're always going to need some um <clears throat> but there are some things that you can do to stop using that one of them is what i think it, you know we call you know delegating really hard so I call it the two percent rule, but let's imagine there's fifty people in your company, that means you're two percent of the resource. So if you work, you know, twice as hard and that company's now running at hundred and two percent instead of hundred percent, it's gonna make no difference. If you work three or four times as hard, it's gonna make no difference. So, you know, how do we make the company more effective, not just make, you know, you more productive or hardworking yourself? Is it you know, and when, when you're a founder CEO and you're going through naught to ten and then ten to maybe 25 people and then what's often i think quite a different phase from 25 to 50 it's easy to lose sight of that really so you know delegate hard and if you haven't got anyone you can delegate to then that's the problem you need to solve you know not just not delegate i'll do it myself um and i think as a ceo you know if you're not working on kind of customers or strategy or your top team or your culture then why are you doing it yourself you know why are you um so you know delegate hard Realise that you're not doing your investors or your customers or your employees actually any favours by going on a journey to, to burning yourself out. Now, we touched on it earlier in terms of, um, you know, the hard thing about hard things that so do, do make hard choice now. I just think that's so relevant to the subject of resilience. It's like give yourself a really crappy day today and sort it out and then have a great year. You know, I think I think that's a really important um way of, of, of thinking about use of uh, use of resilience
1: looking back at your career as a or 18 year career as a SaaS CEO uh, is there anything that you would do differently
0: yeah I mean I probably would have come up with Facebook in 2003 if I was really allowed to look back but uh, yeah I mean more practically I think I would have been more focused I would have been a bit more realistic on on what could be done rather than trying to solve too many things um it, you know, well, I would have tried to, have, I would have done less things epically well. So, more focus. I think I would have spent more time externally with customers and really understanding the mind of the customer rather than understanding the mind of my own employees. So, I think it's where I tended to, to focus. So, I think, yeah, more, more focus generally, but particularly on customers. Uh, I think I would have said no more often actually, and, and we're not going to go after that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to hire that person. Or no, you can't do that. I think I, you know, I'm a growth wanted person and and that led to me not saying no enough. And I think I would have been, you know, tougher sooner on on dysfunction in all its forms. You know, the whole thing we were just talking about in terms of do the do the hard thing today. Um, you know, I learned that lesson so many times and then and then didn't, you know, I wasn't always brilliant at, at executing on it. So yeah, I'm mean, gonna I think if I was gonna run the eighteen years again. That's what I would do. A bit more focus, um, a bit more customers, and, and, and a bit less. A bit more eager to sort out problems quickly uh, for long-term benefit.
1: Throughout the the conversation we've had on on today's show, I mean, it, there's, uh, it's it's being littered with advice to CEOs uh, uh, out there that, that, that are listening or even even looking to become uh, CEOs of uh, of SaaS companies. Um, but what is I guess the final question you, you, you know like if you can distill it down you know some like good advice to give to other uh founders and CEOs out there
0: yeah I mean it's a that's a it's a really hard question you know I spend my working life now working with some absolutely brilliant men and women who are you know SaaS CEOs to to watch out for I think in in the future and it's a privilege to to work with them and you know, we 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 get we we get involved in a whole variety of issues, so it's really hard. I just sort of prep today, try to think: oh, is there anything that, that that's really consistent? And uh, you know, I do think m- m- most of the CEOs I have the privilege of working with now would benefit from probably more sleep, more exercise, more focus, and and more support from those around them. I think, I mean, they're pretty high level things to say, but I think um, you know the common denominator. Probably is that I, I can't think of any any of them that would benefit from less sleep, less exercise, less focus, and and less support. You know, I think those are you know pretty generic good things to uh, to uh, aim to do um, as as a CEO. But it's you know you've talked about writing books. You know there are and there you know there there are libraries full of books on how to be a good uh, a good CEO, and it's a it's a fascinating question. Um, but those probably. Probably would be some top tips from me
1: where can uh, where can the listeners find you online if they've got any questions from uh, after listening to today's podcast
0: yeah do reach out um so um i uh work for the smallest and least ambitious company i ever had which is my own um which is my own little consulting company it's called briggs associates um which which is a story i don't have time to go into today but uh if you uh if you email me j-o-h-n john at briggs uk that's my uh that's my email or you can find me on uh on on linkedin um uh john john thompson um not many the sas ceo john thompson so hopefully you'll find me uh, you'll find me fit um fairly quickly but yeah always uh always happy to uh to engage in the debate and uh, anyone who who is a SaaS ceo or is thinking about making that leap um it's a it's a wonderful career despite some of the subjects we've talked about today um it's it's a fantastic uh fantastic way to spend your uh, your career and you know the the relative cheapness and easiness of which we can create SaaS companies today is a is an amazing thing so uh anyone who's contemplating changing the world a bit then uh then then go and do it and uh, if i can help let me know
1: awesome well we'll, we'll link to your details in, in the show notes and uh, um really enjoyed uh chatting with you today john i think this uh, this has definitely been the the longest episode of the SaaS revolution show uh to date um uh, but there's so much you know material there to, to cover um so uh yeah definitely interested in the, the listeners feedback but I'm, I'm pretty sure that we'll be uh, doing more uh, longer episodes sort of like this to um, you know get into a lot of the meat uh, um, you know, off, uh, the, I guess, the, the, the topics of the day. But uh, on, on that note, John Thompson, um, thank you very much uh, uh, for, for sharing your learnings, lessons, advice uh, on the SAS Revolution show today.
0: Thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure, Alex. And to those who've made it to the end of our longest ever episode, <laughs> thanks for listening to the end. Appreciate
1: it. hope you've enjoyed this extended episode and have written down some of the amazing advice john thompson offers us let us know if you like this longer format by leaving a review and a rating on apple itunes or wherever you get your podcast or by reaching out on twitter uh, at SASDOc. thanks for listening see you next time